Are we all stunned into silence? Andrew. Um, lots of authentication is happening on social devices. What does this How do you square that? What, what ideas do you have for having something which works on a touch and a non-touch device? Because if you accessing the same system through two different devices, and one of them's got a particular type of interface, yeah. and the other one doesn't have that particular type of interface, how do you square that, sir? By looking at um, the way you put this or not in, um, in, in usability, by basically looking at which device do you use more often. Um, I think the other part that I maybe didn't emphasize here is I actually think 90% of authentication should go. 90% of explicit authentication should just go. We don't need it. It's done by sometimes by just by people who don't understand access control. Um, it's just done by thoughtlessly as, oh, you know, how do I, let's just prove the user again who they are. And I think, first of all, that's got to go. So that will take care of 90% of the problem. And then you look at which device do you use more frequently, what are the risks associated with it, and you would basically then find a mechanism, a globally optimal mechanism, as opposed to trying to have a locally optimal mechanism. If you genuinely use both devices equally, you use the mechanism that is globally optimal rather than locally and, and of course, you can take lots of work away. Use the modality of interaction. You don't have to use if they're already using video things. You can have uh, you can have um, a, a one-step biometric. Just the way people hit the screen is pretty unique, and it's perfectly good enough risk management for if, if you then if they type in a simple password and you you, you take the knowledge-based credential together with how they hit the keys. Use another two-factor. There's loads of ways of doing it. We're not using the range of possibilities. Ross. But then again, much authentication is not about authentication. When your favorite newspaper makes you choose a password, it's to make you feel that you belong to the newspaper community. It's marketing. And similarly, when the people at the airport grow your genitals, they're doing so to reassure you that the government cares. <laughs> that, that is probably true, but utterly red herring for the purpose of this debate. It's one of the 90% of authentication just all to go. I have a couple of comments on that. One is that I worked for a while at a company that did a, a an authentication scheme where you, where you authenticated once every 10 hours and then let you get to any of the services for a while in 10 hours. And this was a company for like touch devices, etc. Um, and what I'm doing now is, is when we provision our system to our customers, there is a one-time authentication, and then an authentication token is given to the user, and they never they never have to type it in again. Thank you. <laughs> Richard, I, my name is to all what uh, Joe Bonneau's observation on this, which is that authentication is a machine learning problem. It's, it's not to do with passwords. It's whether or not, when you touch our system, whether or not you look like you're touching our system. Uh, the last time we did so. And the, the reason Joe came up with this is because he, he, he interned at Yahoo, he then went and worked at Google, and he saw what the real world is like, where the issue is, is not authenticating users. It's the fact that users are compromised in their millions and their tens of millions, and it's a question of giving back accounts to the right person rather than anything else, because in practice, the 
people have their accounts stolen on a regular basis. It doesn't do them all that much, all that much harm, provided we give it back to them in a prompt manner. I, I do agree with that fact. There are still cases that Stuart has highlighted, quite correctly highlighted, where there are cases where users actually have some crown jewels and have important things to protect. And I think for those, they have to have manageable and usable mechanisms to, to have control over this. I, I really enjoyed those talks about passwords, but um, just to be arrogant rhetorically, I don't have a problem with passwords. I have a problem with my username. Uh, and I've got two problems. One is the passwords that write these things, if you make a mistake, they clear your username and your password. And because I'm going through the eight usernames I think I've got, I have no idea which username I've got up to. And the reason why I've got multiple usernames is one is you, know, you go to a new site and, well, I'll be Harold. And it says, why not be Harold287? So when I go back to it, I can't remember, so I create another name. Uh, my university thinks I'm H Thimbleby, HW Thimbleby, it thinks I'm Harold, it thinks I'm CS Harold. And when I go into a new bloody marking system, I don't know what username I've got. Well, at the corporate um, level, you can mention this. If you look at users on the NDS, how we say BT, about 80% were used to the problem, by about 80% by being standardized and usernames. Within a corporate environment, you can handle that. I think we need to think about how you do this in a cross-site. It's already being done. If you think about what the internet was like, it was like to sign up for a website 20 years ago, you created a username like this. For most modern sites, you are no longer asked for a username. You are asked for your email address, which means okay. they both get a unique way to refer to you, and they get a way to contact you when you forget your password. No, no, so, no. Um, say EasyCheck, my PhD student signed me up with yet another name on it. Uh, that's, yes, EasyChair is, is a 15-year-old system. If you use hot crap, you will not have this problem. Uh, I practice email based. No, right. The modern systems are email based because they have figured out this is a problem in the, in the right. It, the, the sites that now have a clue, not easy chair, have, have really tried to address it. Jean? Okay, to respond to the last comment, an, an email address is a username. It's, you're just, uh, I, I know that we all love to solve a problem with another layer of indirection, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. So, uh, but my actual comment was about what we're trying to do to Angela is to make, uh, is to make it more risk aware. So we're looking at, we took this, this and I want, I'm asking you for your opinion. Uh, we, we do this machine learning to see if you're entering a high-value password, meaning did it go to your email, your workplace, and your bank? And then if you use that password in a, another context, or if you pick a bad password in that context, we'll bother you, right? We'll put up warnings. But as long as you're just going, you know, around the web to, you know, Justin Bieber and Rihanna Rules and you know, mypoliticsareright.com, we don't bother you at all about the badness of your password, you know, or easy chair, which, yeah, I mean, somebody could enter room reviews under my name. Like that. And in that way, we're trying, we're trying to, I actually work really hard to do polite, actionable reviews. Um, so in that way, we, we're, we're annoying the, the participants as infrequently as possible. So we're trying to do this risk-based thing, not based on 
what the person is doing because we kind of assume they know what they're doing, but based on trying to make the risk they're taking visible to them. So that kind of flips it. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I still think it's a, you know it's a bit of sticky plaster over what you're trying to to, to hold. You know, we're trying to risk basically doing things on a risk-based risk management. Yeah, that's what, what organizations do all the time. But you're just basically trying to do to be least less worse, less bad, yeah. less annoying than most of the other people people are by doing it less frequently. I still think the whole approach is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I have a question for Serge. I like the idea of tailoring either uh, privacy settings or security warnings to, to, to personalities and, and what, what people are like. Do you have any intuition of how many different categories? Is it, is it four? Is it ten? Is it a hundred? How, how many categories are you going to end up with when you figure this out? I don't know the answer to that. It's five if you look at our forthcoming uh, KPMPs. Does it seem more like five or more like fifty? We're not at that stage yet. I mean, so right now, the piece that we're looking at is, you know, so what can we, you know, generally infer about, you know, your privacy and security behaviors from, you know, these different psychometrics, and then, you know, the other piece of that is, you know, based on what, you know, system, you know, observations can we make on a system to then infer um, all of that. I kind of like the idea that we go to a site and says, judging from your past behavior, you're going to like privacy settings. This right, kind of neat. You can do that. Yeah, I think that that's probably the biggest application of this is just. Except when you put it that way, Bruce, it sounds privacy invasive. It, it does, right? Yeah. It's watching you. Yeah, yeah. right. Who's giving you that one? So it's like telling me that they, they want my privacy settings to be this, they recommend that. No! <laughs> no! If the EFF is recommending a set of privacy settings, I'm going to be reasonably, and this is something sure. I can do, who is recommending it? Because if it's the site itself, I'm going to say absolutely yeah. not, because that's your interest, not my interest, that's going to predominate in that recommendation. Ah, uh, I would dispute that, to, to some extent. I think that one of the problems we have, so, you know, take Facebook, um, and... Please, tell me. <laughs> Those of you at Facebook, feel free to, to correct me if I'm wrong, but into Intuitively, it seems that you know the they have only you know they can only gain from having better interpersonal privacy settings because they get you know by having. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. So in terms of their revenue streams, it's mostly from businesses, from the advertising, from collect, you know, data collection, and that has very little to do with your interpersonal privacy settings. No, you, it, it, actually, it, it's, it's almost backwards. Facebook does better when you are on more, when you're sharing more, sure. when you see more stuff. So Correct. they have a strong interest in having you have less privacy among each other. Which is no, why, if you feel, no, 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 no. They expand it. Right? No, what, so what's if, what's visible by default. Yes. You're, the can I, can I finish? What they've done is things have got more open by default over the last eight years. So we know that people actually engage more when they feel like they have more control. And so if the end users think that they're you know, better control over their audience, they're more likely to, you know, to post more and engage more with the service. Whereas if they feel they have no control and that they keep you know, losing what little control they have, they're likely to engage less. So you haven't posted in two weeks. Would you like to just post to some friend, to, to your closest friends? So, 
so in regard to like default privacy settings and oversharing versus undersharing, so like both of both of both both of these are actually problems. So and but yes, oversharing is definitely the more serious one. Like, but we actively like try and measure try and measure like how often people's expectations of how what the what level they're sharing at versus what they're actually sharing at. And like we start we started like asking people periodically, hey, like did you really mean to post this publicly? You may you may really want to be I'm sorry. You may be only wanting to post it to friends. Do you really want to be visible to Google? Uh, you <laughs> the option to not be visible to Google. Uh, we have we have an option like we still still have like the like should I show up and search and find the chat. Yeah, I have a question for Stuart. So um, your mechanism, uh, this in your experiment, you were designing it in such a way that the user wasn't really aware that you were trying to train them on these passwords, this thing. That's how it was presented. They, 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 they were aware that we were trying to train them uh, on the password. They, they, we were leading to believe it was not the focus of the study. So this, we, we told them this system, right? We've had some, we've had some problems with security, and we need you. Uh, the, the exact message was on the slide, okay. but but yeah, that uh, you need to. We're asking you to fill in this additional security code. But you didn't, you didn't. Um, so they knew there was a this added mechanism, but they didn't know that you were going to be repeated, repeatedly giving to them as a way of trying to train them on remembering. You didn't, you didn't explain that part of the goal, that's right? Or? Uh, it did. It came it through did. eventually. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, you copy it and you can enter it before it appears. And, and it was pretty clear by the time you got to the second one what was going on. Okay, my, the, that kind of takes over my comment. My question, my comment was like, it seems that you would want to get the users more involved in this, telling them the overall goal is that we're, we're going to even maybe even tell them how many times they're going to do this would be eventually helpful. That, that would have been, yeah, we're, we're, it's unclear whether that would have been helpful or not. It's, we, we had to make a bet in one way, and we, you know, for that, for those few hundred participants, we made the bet in that direction. One of the nice things about the fact that it's a low security site is, is we know their their motivation was not as high as it would have been presumably for you know their password manager or for hopefully they, they feel positively enough to declare that they uh, have more enthusiasm for that one. So right, it, it's nice when you, when your study design is conservative, when your your users are less enthusiastic to help you out than you, you'd hope they would be in real life. So I, I mean, I'm very glad I'm kind of said we need a reboot, but I think we need to be really radical in our solutions. What we are trying to do now is, okay, well, there's this business that you have to be timing your password every 15 minutes into the thing. Well, we make a system where it's even more secure than if you type your password in 30 seconds, but you never have that password. And you're never going to have to remember anything. Of course, you have to be there in this way. It means you do things that people say it'll never work. It's not compatible with anything that happens. But yeah, we are not ready to go and substitute existing system right now. We're going to do a system that when we're finally done and we think that passwords are just beyond like, what we can tolerate, then we have some technical solution. And in fact, um, what can I say? Uh, there's, we should not penalize people for things that are not their fault. With passwords, for example, there's two months ago, it was hard to believe. 
The last month it was eBay, where some leak at very far, or some problem at very far, even if they've invested all the time, the steward says, look, I, I'm so glad I learned a 56-bit password. I have to learn another one, because someone else's fault makes me learn it over again. And with something like people, the verifier can mess it up as much as they want. All they lose is your public key, and therefore you don't have to change your own credentials, no matter how bad this stuff happens in there. So complete rethink, complete rethink everything. I think actually also realistically, if you think about it, given the various threat models, it's actually inevitable that for most things we need to move to one-time credentials, right? And what we need is, is a simple, manageable way of if you're exposing the credentials, they have to be one time. And that's the real challenge. That's really what we need to go towards. And basically, there's kind of messing around with those type of credentials to stop. So I have two questions. Uh, one of them is the statistics that you showed. I'm really bad at statistics, so I'm not sure I understood what you showed. Uh, you had some password tests, and you had a false breakthrough for 99, just like in a different uh, correlation. Can you check that out, maybe? And the other question is, uh, once you have these models of uh, user privacy or security preferences, then how do you use them in practice? What, what are the challenges that you would occur when you have to use them? Well, right now, I mean, so we're looking at how these correlate with the um, the different you know, privacy metrics in the literature. I think that you know the, the next thing that we're starting to do right now is looking at how that you know matches up with behavior, uh, with you know with that actual behavior. I think that you know as a starting point, if we found that there was absolutely no correlation with you know, preferences, then this is probably a dead end. But since there's you know evidence to suggest that you know at least it matches, you know, it's predictive of the the preferences, then. You know, then maybe there's something there. Um, I didn't. Ca I didn't understand your statistical question. Um, well, basically, you're showing some statistical sets that you said that there was a small correlation between different factors, and you have this beta, which is also the right was 0.99. I remember well. No, that was. The, sorry, no, that, that was. Um, that was just showing the effect size and the power. So, you know, we had a really small effect size. So, you know, our squared value was like. 0.05, so that, you know, variance explained. Uh, beta was, you know, statistical power. So the point was that we didn't have a small, you know, effect size just, be, you know, because we had an insufficient sample. Um, we had, you know, hundreds of people doing these. And so the point was that I think that, that you know, there was enough rigor um, in the experiment to show that um, there really isn't much there when looking at the big five. Please. Um, just a question about captures, actually. You mentioned, and I agree, captures are all terrible. Uh, they're really hard to use. But uh, being able to distinguish between people and bots or malware is really valuable as well. So I guess the question is, what do we do? How do we, do, do you have suggestions for, for a solution? Yes, do well, I mean, I think that the simple answer is, is, is you know, come up with a less lazy solution <laughs> because the service providers that really have to, because otherwise their business will suffer, manage to uh, come up, have found ways of managing the risk. And it really depends on how you manage it, depends on what you're worried about, whether it's about creation of, of wrong accounts, of, of what accounts, or whether it's buying margins of tickets or something like that. Based on that, you can usually, by defining the undesirable behavior, I see John, John Molling here as well, but by defining the undesirable behavior, you can usually manage the risk. It's just a lot easier to just slap that thing up there and say all legitimate users, you know, first, uh, before you can enter here, first of all, prove to me you're not a bot, which is just, just this, this upside down thing. Did you want to ask? 
I thought you might be interested in another password problem, and I wonder what your solutions to the problem would be. It's patient-controlled analgesia. Uh, PCA comes to some of the safest medical devices, and they're for people who are in pain cancer. Uh, they might be about this sort of size, and they might have some drug in it like morphine. And the idea is when I'm in pain, I press a button, and I get a few mils of morphine. And if I press the button again, I have to wait 30 seconds, and then I get a few more mils of morphine. And if I drift off to sleep, I stop pressing the button. That's the idea. So it's quite a safe system. Uh, the manufacturer's solution to this, because obviously I want to fiddle with this and have more morphine more often, uh, is there's a four-digit password. And the hospital's problem is they might have 200 of these wretched machines. And they might have agency nurses who go onto a ward and don't know what the codes are. So every PCA pump is one, two, three, four. And if you're a patient, you, you sit there for a couple of goes and you figure out how it works. So what would you do? Use the factor of authentication, or, or one step, one step to factor biometric authentication. You don't need the nurses. Or you go back. No, but as, as long as you know, or you basically use it to factor the physical. Physical token. You might say once it's allowed, it's just token. Um, rather than uh, it seems you have on simply no, because then you give them to each of the nurses. In fact, it sounds like an example. It sounds like a I think these things have been around for 40 years. They take more than an authentication form. Jeff, you have time. I have a question for Stuart. Yes. Did you consider password interference? Basically, in your study, how many passwords participate? Uh, so we considered interference in that we were giving three chunks, and we saw we didn't see any interference between chunks. We didn't have people memorize three of these things. The goal is you were three different accounts, right? No, it was it was three chunks of either four letters per chunk or two words per chunk, mm -hmm. uh, and then they were aggregates, and the aggregate didn't seem to to cause any problems. Now, again, we we do not want websites to use this. Very clear. We want this to be used for either. A, your password manager, B, your enterprise credential, or C, with 56 bits, if you get the parameters right, you could use this as, your, as the seed for a random, uh, as, the, as the seed for a crypto key. And if you ever lose your public and private key, you could just regenerate them from 56 bits so long as, as the work level is hard enough. These are the three applications. You should have no more than three of these. So we, we do, please, please. Do not blog, do not implement. Implement, right, this is, right, this, this should only be used for very specific applications, like your password manager. This should not be used for your bank. Your bank is still using secret questions. They are the last, well, banks should be the first folks to figure some of these things out. They tend to be the last, right? If, about the, there being no progress in 15 years, when I log into my web accounts now, they usually stay logged in for two weeks. That didn't happen 20 years ago. Secret questions, They're right? Going to win. Oh, by the way, I have a quick comment about uh, Angela's comment on captures. It's true, so I'm afraid that if you start pointing out that 12 character passwords are doable, then the world's accountants will start insisting on it everywhere because that's how people behave in organizations. But my thinking about this was challenged in January when I went to give a talk at Essos, and the other person giving a keynote there was the guy at Google who runs Dashboard. 
And um, his theme was that the world is changing as people move to phones and tablets. And whereas in the world of laptops, you enter your Gmail password once a day, in the world of phones and tablets, you, earn it, you, you enter it once when you buy the device, and that's it. And that's now what people expect, and everything has to work under the hood. Okay? And if um, I lose my phone, I expect to go to Google Dashboard and say, exterminate this phone, and it will then no longer work for my Gmail account, and I won't have to change the password. That is now required system behavior. That's what everyone will expect. Um, if this goes on in the current direction, then the password problem is solved, and instead we get instead the um, problems of usability of the underlying protocols, which Yuli was talking about. No, we've just, we've just passed authenticating with your password from your PC to your phone. You, right. You're still authenticating somewhere. It, it just keeps getting pushed around. It's just, it's just that I will no longer enter passwords from one year's end to the next. That is what the world now expects. Either the browser will remember the password, or I will stop using the laptop and I will use the phone instead. Done. How do you authenticate yourself to your phone? That's right. what Stuart said. You, I, you've I, just pushed I, the I, I, enter, I enter my Gmail password no, no, no. once when I buy the phone. And, and then every we... time I start this phone, I enter a code. That's your choice. <laughs> That's your choice. That's yeah. your choice. Millions of people don't. It's, uh, it's, it's not his choice of his work. employer is using a system that lets him get his work mail and his employer. That when he, he connects to his work email, it's going to push down a policy that says if you enter your path, you have to have a password and if you enter it wrong five times, I will break this phone, including all of your personal data. I'm not saying it should do that, especially the personal data part, but that's the way things work today. You know, I think that is a serious problem that security I, I engineers say, eat it. You know, that's it, it what, and that's what Microsoft says, and that's what your experiment says, eat it. You know, this sucks, but you can do it, so eat it. And that is pretty much, you know, much of what I see in, even in usable security. How much can you, you know, possibly tolerate? Richard. A couple of questions ago, there was a question about captures, which it was Friday's just how do we is important because we want to distinguish people from bots. And this is not correct. What, what most of large services wish to do is they wish to stop uh, any individual accumulating very large numbers of accounts. They don't actually care whether or not that's been done by people in the sweatshop in Southeast Asia or whether or not it's been done by a bot. Right? Therefore, what people are looking for is some some sense, something unique, which they're doing. Currently, current state of the art on this is we ask people for phone numbers, and then we make them turn around their SMSs, because we currently believe that it is difficult for the bad guys to accumulate very large numbers of phone numbers. And the bad guys are, are showing that this is not in fact correct, but this is slowing a lot of people down. Right? Yeah, but asking exactly me for my phone numbers. number isn't difficult for me. Right? Doing a capture is... So, but having a phone number is very straightforward for, for, the, for the good guys and terrible. But and that's what you're right. The point is that you have to make sure that you're asking the wrong, the right question. The question you're not asking is: Is this person a human? Is this person somebody who already?
already has too many accounts. Once you ask the question correctly, then you can start looking for the solution. And the solution is not necessarily in the human factors space. It may be in some other scarcity space where it is hard for people uh, to generate large numbers of instances. Too, 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 too many accounts work. I mean, that sounds like, is this person breathing? Um, that's also not right. Of you have too many accounts. No, too many accounts with this particular service provider. Do I have 200 Facebook accounts? Okay. They, they don't want to touch 200 Facebook accounts. I, I think with that, we're going to bring the session to a close. Thank you very much.